Welcome to Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, a podcast series sponsored by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at the NYU Silver School of Social Work and the Community Technical Assistance Center of New York. I'm your host, Jason Jones. This series brings together thought leaders, community members, and individuals with lived experience to discuss and dispel the myths and stereotypes surrounding black boys and men, while providing facts and best practices for those working with these often marginalized populations. Today's podcast will focus on the impact of police brutality on the psychological well-being of black boys and men. Police brutality and the criminalization of black men have been issues of concern within black communities for centuries. Although making up just 13% of the U.S. population, black people are disproportionately impacted by police-related deaths. According to a recent study published by the American Journal of Public Health, black men are nearly three times as likely to die from the use of force by the police than their white counterparts. Police brutality and other forms of racial trauma often elicit race-based traumatic stress and psychological injury. We are joined by Dr. Samuel Amer, an associate professor at the Silberman School of Social Work at Hunter College and a leading researcher examining the link between police brutality and trauma. Dr. Amer, thanks for joining us. Before we get started, please tell us a little bit more about you and the work that you do. Sure. Thank you for having me, Jason. So I am an associate professor at the Silberman School of Social Work where I teach in the clinical area and I teach a number of courses that are designed to help students to work with a multiracial, multilingual, multicultural population in the urban context. And essentially my research centers on two areas. I like to think about my research as being intersectional. So the first part of my research and scholarly work centers on work with African-American men. Of course, I work with all different kinds of men, but certainly my emphasis is on African-American men, and to really explore and research areas that are specific to their psychosocial functioning, both in terms of their own interpersonal dynamics and intrapersonal dynamics, as well as, you know, issues around social injustice and oppression. And second, second part of my research centers around intimate partner violence with a focus on both the behavioral and psychosocial aspects of working with men who are abusive in intimate relationships as well as women who are also in those relationships. So my research has sort of, you know, as I said, it's intersectional, but pretty much cohere because I'm dealing with issues of trauma on sort of the intimate side, and I'm also dealing with issues of trauma in terms of the ecology. And I like what you mentioned about just systemic injustices, and I think that perfectly leads us into the topic of today, which is police brutality and the link between that and trauma uh, and the experiences of black boys and men. Just going based off of mm-hmm. some of the research that you'd, you've done, how would you define police brutality? Well, I would say that police brutality takes on many forms. I think you could talk about the classic form, which is stop and frisk. And I say classic because it's in the media. Many people are aware of that. If you say stop and frisk in today's society, people are able to make the association rather quickly that you have a particular group of people who tend to be subjected to that kind of treatment. So certainly stop and frisk 
you know, is something that I think a lot about. And then you have, you know, surveillance, you know, the surveilling black, black bodies. So that could be anywhere from just what I'd like to call the arc of living while black. And, you know, along that, along that line of the arc of living while black, one has to deal with, you know, shopping wild black, driving wild black, and certainly those kinds of things affect both people's psychological state as well as their way of navigating the social terrain of life. So I think when I think about police brutality, I'm thinking a bit about, as I said, stop and frisk. I'm thinking about kind of the surveillance, heavy surveillance relative to black bodies, and black bodies that are in spaces and places where perhaps they aren't supposed to be, or at least there is a perception that those bodies aren't supposed to be there. And then, of course, you have, you know, just police killing. So you have brutality, you have harassment, and you have killings. Killing, when you think a little bit about the last couple of years in New York City and beyond, certainly Ferguson, Chicago, mm-hmm. et cetera, you've had just, gratuitous killings of unarmed black men. And so that usually is the net result. But before killing occurs, and when I say before, I'm not suggesting that police brutality happens in a neat way, but certainly you have harassment, you have brutality, you know, and all that sort of centers around stop and frisk. So it's really a whole continuum of behaviors that black boys and black men are subjected to, and they sort of culminate in arrest as well as death. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned it because I think that we often conceptualize it as just killing or really extreme forms of violence, but it really does involve many times policies like stop and frisk Mm-hmm. as well as just the heavy surveillance of black bodies, particularly of black men. And it's, you know, it's not something that's just within the media within the past few years. I think Correct. that there have been centuries of the criminalization of black men. Correct. Um, Correct. And now we're just getting a lot of it through news and through other media outlets. But, you know, one of the questions that I want to ask you in terms of that, this has been an issue that's been documented for years. What do you think are the factors for its perpetuation? Well, I mean, one of the things that I write about is that, you know, when you think a little bit about the fact that we can all be a witness right now of police injustice because of the advent of technology, everyone has a phone now practically. And so people can film and people can put it on social media, et cetera, and, you know, I, must, I should also add that, you know, Rodney King, many of us who are old enough to remember Rodney King's story, that was taped. And although it was taped, you know, the, the officers certainly didn't, didn't do any time, you know. And so the idea of having a video camera at one's disposal and to be able to tape these horrific scenes of police brutality and police misconduct, it's not a new phenomenon. I think what's new is the fact that 
these cameras are omnipresent. So everyone has one now. They're not sort of like, you know, one person carrying a camera and they just happen to catch these scenarios. So I think, for one thing, I think many of us can sort of be a witness to these, these acts of violence. And then I also think that, you know, we have to go back historically and look at how black men have been treated, you know, going back, going back to the Jim Crow era and going back to enslavement. I mean, black male bodies, as well as black women's bodies, but for the purpose of this podcast, we're focusing on black men. You know, our bodies were never really considered to be, you know, ent- entities that were respected and honored. And so in my, in my work, I talk about lynching, and I talk about those kinds of acts of violence that black men had to experience. And so for me, when I think about how black men are treated by the police, I also think that this is a continuum in terms of how black men and black boys are are treated in the larger society. And so this is only one facet of that treatment. I think people just like to sometimes compartmentalize and think that so, you know, we're talking about police misconduct. But for example, you know, if you're a black man and you're going to most stores today, you're going to be followed. And that's not police. That's not about the police. But that's about a kind of an image that is etched in the minds of many people, uh, conscious, unconsciously as well as consciously. And so there's an automatic response that, you know, when black men show up, that we're considered to be dangerous, we're a menace to society. You have to watch us. Again, I keep using this term, we have to be surveilled. And so I think that when you think about, you know, what happens via the police, you have these sort of precursors. You have these ways in which black men and black boys are viewed. When you think about what the police officer said about Tamir Rice, that he thought he was an adolescent, and yet this was a child, and so how do, you, how do you misinterpret, how do you misperceive the body of a child versus the body of an adult? And so my sort of take on, on this is rather, you know, I like to look at the macro, and I also like to look at the historical. I'm not an ahistorical practitioner. I try to look at things, you know, from a historical perspective. And so I think that during the... Uh, the era of lynching, you know, no one really paid for those debts. And so I think, you know, my, one of my articles I talked about Emmett Till, you know, it's only more mm-hmm. recently that his, his family has been vindicated because the, the woman that was allegedly the victim as a result of him assaulting her by way of looking at her uh, has now, you know, revealed that it didn't occur. And so, but look at how many years one had to wait for that kind of confession, and yet, you know, his body was demolished. So I I think there's a a, a clear lack of, you know, respect, but that's putting it mildly. The point I really want to make is the fact that we are othered, and any time you're othered, your humanity is never really viewed as salient to who you are in the society. To your point, many folks often like to separate the individual act from anything that came before. Correct. When there's clearly a documented history 
of these things happening. And I, I agree. I do think that it comes down to how folks are viewed and maybe these implicit biases interacting with the individual within the context and resulting in, a, in some type of brutal act or some type of act of discrimination in many ways. Right. And, you know, one of the, I guess one of my struggles with the construct of implicit bias, and I understand why it's been, it has sort of seeped into our, our consciousness in the last mm. couple of years, and it, it's fascinating to me because I think it obscures sometimes the narrative. And so if there is implicit bias, how is it that it's not directed at every person in the society? So when we talk about this notion of implicit bias, we talk about it vis-a-vis the police relationship to men of color. So if the implicit bias suggests to me that you're not aware that you're biased, right? That's what implicit means. It's at the level of, you know, it's at part of the unconscious, if you will, you know. And so if that's the case, then I think it, it seems to me that we would have a much more wider population of people or a, a, a larger population of people, rather, that would be subjected to these kinds of treatments. Why is it that when other groups sort of show up, people don't automatically think that they're up to no good? Now, clearly we're talking about black men. I think there are other groups in the society where, you know, police may surveil them as well. What, what, what is of concern to me is that you don't hear about the kind of, you know, killings, the gratuitous killings that are related to black men in the society. So I'm still kind of pondering this notion of implicit bias because mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure how I feel about it. And my, my thoughts are not to undermine that body of scholarship, but is to at least engage in discourse about what, is, what it is we're talking about. And it, 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 is it a way to kind of obscure or to make more acceptable the, 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 the sort of feelings that people may have about a, a particular group of people? So that's kind of where I sit with that. So it's kind of interesting that you brought that up because I'm thinking a lot about it, even in my teaching, because students ask about that construct all the time and they bring it up periodically as we're talking about, you know, uh, issues of social injustice. And, you, you know, you mentioned examples of racial profiling. I think you pointed to shopping while black, mm-hmm. um, stop and frisk. Another common one is driving mm-hmm. while black. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, other forms of brutality and police brutality. When individuals experience that, what type of emotional toll does it take? You know, that's a really good point, uh, Jason. I, I think one would have to really think about where the person is where this, where the black male may be in his own racial identity development, because as we know from Cross's study about racial identity development, many black people come to this place of understanding who they are in relation in relation to oppression and white supremacy and bias and stigma. They come to that based on a set of experiences that they've had. It's not as though you wake up one day and all of a sudden you have this awareness about who you are relative to the larger society. And by that I mean that, of course, you know that racism exists, you know that bias exists, but the fact that you would be 
the direct target or the victim of it, I don't think that many black people sort of get up every day and say, well, I'm, that's going to happen to me. My experience, mm-hmm. even in my practice, I have a private practice as well, and I see a number of men of color, and I see people of color in general, but a lot of black men that, I, that I'm working with in therapy, racism is not the first thing that they talk about. Even when I make an assessment in treatment that perhaps what they're talking about is infused with, you know, organizational racism and bias, so that people really shy away from that. And I think people do shy away from that because, number one, they, they, they don't want to feel as though this is happening to them because of who they are. That's not a good feeling that you're stopping me simply because I'm a black man and I'm driving a particular kind of car. Even though we know that exists, I don't think that many black men are thinking that 24 hours a day. Now, I'm also saying that they have some understanding that that could happen, but it's kind of like, you know, having an understanding that something could happen and then it happens to you, right? And I think those two, sometimes there is cognitive dissonance there. And I think that in this case, cognitive cognitive dissonance can be quite adaptive because if one had to try to navigate the terrain of racism and race and gender as black men and as black people on a daily basis and and having to do that and having to be preoccupied with that, that would be quite taxing. So the point that I guess I'm trying to make here is, is that I think for every black person or every black male, it's going to be very different in the sense of, you know, you're driving down the highway And if you're having a really great time with family and friends, that's not on your mind. But if you see the sheriff that passes by you, the thought may occur to you. And you may not say anything, but someone in the car might say, oh, you know, you've got to be careful. And then that may heighten heighten one's anxiety. I think when you go shopping, you 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 don't go shopping with the intention that you're going to be followed. But you do understand something about the racial narrative of America, or maybe I should say, if you do understand something about the racial narrative of America, that you could say, well, if I'm going to buy an expensive piece of whatever, jewelry, etc., that in fact, when I show up at this store, that this thing could happen to me, meaning racial profiling could happen to me. But I still mm-hmm. think there's denial. So I think for many black people, many black men in particular, my point simply is is that it's not so it's not so absolute. I think that there there are shades of gray. And I also think that one has to also control for social class because I think if you're a black man of a particular social class that your sense of who you are in the world might be qualitatively different than if you're a black man who who's from a lower class or upper class. And I think the issue of class sometimes is always omitted from the discourse here. So we talk about all black men as if they're a monolith. And I argue all the time in my own work that we're not monolithic, but the commonalities that exist for us is that either intent, either consciously or unconsciously, we know that we have to navigate race and racism. So it's a really about one's own subjectivity 
around how one can really manage this whole experience that we call the narrative of race in America. You know, I heard a few different things in there. One is that it's important for us to take note that as black men, we're all individuals and we all have our shared experience in terms of identity in some ways of identifying as black. But how we contextualize that and how we see the world and experience it is, of course, different. And that would, of course, impact not only how one acts or behaves in these situations, but also how they perceive it. And I, you know, I haven't heard that differentiation between folks of different socioeconomic statuses as well, because that, of course, will change your context and change how yeah. you how you perceive these situations. Right. I mean, I think, for example, some black men might say, well, you know, the cops, the cops is doing his job. And he pulled me over, and, you know, I showed him my ID, and everything went well, and, and, and I'm fine. Conversely, you could have Skip Gates, who's a Harvard professor, who protested and said, you're not going to get me out of my house. This is my mm-hmm. house. And yet, you know, we all know how that scenario went, right? That didn't go so well in terms of the kind of commotion that it, it created and the the, the difficulties that then occurred, which then got the president involved, et cetera. And again, I think as a, as a black male, certainly as a therapist, as an educator, as a, as a writer, as a scholar, I look at all of this as not in a binary way, that it isn't right or wrong. You know, so for the, for the black man who's protesting and feeling this, in, this sense of indignation, how dare you? I bought this car, you know, I earned this. I think there's some, there's a, that's a kind of a truth that, that exists there. And conversely, you know, for the black man who feels like, well, I have to be obedient, and I'm not saying that, I'm not using that word to be, to be smart or anything like that, but he feels like he has to really obey the law, he's much more conservative in his view, et cetera, I think that's just a different kind of black man. But I think because of racism, we, we're never, our subjectivity is, is not really honored sometimes. So hence, the, this sense of us being monolithic comes to the forefront. So when people say a black male, like what, what are we talking about here? Who are we talking mm-hmm. about? And so that's been an area that I've tried to talk a lot about and to I push back in my scholarship about that, yes, our, we, have, we have lots of commonalities, and at the same time, we must honor who we are and what we bring. You know, what's interesting about it is that your perspective could also change whether it's your first time having a negative encounter with mm-hmm. law enforcement or if it's something that's repeated. And I think that's something that we've heard a lot in terms of folks who have these repeated encounters experiencing, you know, what we, we, what we typically call race-based traumatic stress and mm-hmm. this psychological trauma resulting mm-hmm. from that. Right. Can you talk about a few cases or any experiences that you've had working with others who've experienced that? Well, you know, I think that Carter's work is really groundbreaking. Many of us who have been thinking about this for years just didn't have language, didn't have a conceptual framework, didn't have a way of really understanding 
the saliency of what we were seeing from clients or what we were seeing in terms of the communities that we either work in or live in. So I think that to really understand that uh, trauma is trauma when it occurs in a particular context. So, for example, when we think about, you know, trauma that occurs as a result of, you know, seeing that your parents are being abused and you're a kid and you have to endure that. So that's a certain kind of trauma, right? So that's familial trauma. And so that's contextual. One can kind of understand that. One can have a lot of feelings about that. Similarly, when you talk about trauma that is racialized or that is race-related, that gives us context as well. The context, however, that I think it gives us is that it helps us to understand that this is not happening with everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that, to me, is a very salient aspect of, you know, of race-related stress or race-related trauma because not every person in the community, I meaning the community of, 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 the, of humankind, will experience that. This is only specific to a particular group of people. And so, you know, the fact that you are stopped because of who you are and you're stopped repeatedly because of who you are, or you may be killed, or there may be anticipatory anxiety that you may have or that others may have because of who you are. So I think that race-related trauma or race-related stress means that we are dealing with external circumstances, external stimuli that ultimately emerge because of who we are. Not because we have a terrible personalities, not because we have a personality disorder, if you can, if you can allow me to indulge, but it's just simply because of who you are. And there's no differentiation about your family, about your social status, about your your social standing, that when you leave your own context, your own familial context, your own friendship network, where you're being nurtured potentially and so forth, and you move into a larger structure, that you're seen as this entity. And that perception certainly has the potential for lots of things happening to you. And so race-related trauma, I think, is, 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 is interesting because, you know, on the one hand, I think for, for professionals like us, it gives us a handle. I think it's also hard when it's happening to you and you, you, come, you, you, know, you get in touch with the fact that this has happened to you because of who you are. Right, mm-hmm. and so in my own work, I remember working with the young man that I that I talked about in the paper, Jamal. I mean, it was very hard for him to understand as an adolescent that this was happening to him because it didn't fit his image, even as an adolescent, as a young African American young black man who was in fact doing well in school didn't sag his pants. He didn't have any of those markers that could Mm -hmm. potentially put him in a precarious position. And yet he ended up in a precarious position. His father even, I was captured in the the case study, 
that his father also had experienced stop and frisk. So we can even talk about this, this from an intergenerational perspective, but had not talked to his son about this because he was trying to shield him. It wasn't until his son had that experience that he, the father, you know, and I mean, he became a bit depressed. I wasn't, I wasn't treating him at the time, but I could see, but I did interact with him. He became a bit depressed, and he had to also unpack for his son that he himself had experienced that. And there was a lot of shame. There was a lot of shame. And so I think that's another part of the narrative here, that people do feel a lot of shame when these things happen to them. So they don't talk to anybody. And sometimes, for example, with race-related stress and race-related trauma, when you tell other people about the situation, it can be undermined, not undermined, it can be sometimes it can be viewed as not so serious. It can mm. be ignored. And, and that can happen from within and without. You know, because I know I was working with a woman once, and she went into this really high-end store in Manhattan, and when she walked in, you know, she said automatically she knew that everybody was on alert. And when she, she made a purchase, and when she was leaving, they stopped her, and they asked her to open her bag. And she did, and she said, you know, she did everything she was supposed to do, and she said she came out of the store, and she wept. It was a summer day, so she just sat on the bench and she wept. And then she went and she had a bite to eat. And she said she came home and she was telling her sister. And her sister said to her, oh, you're just so, I mean, move on, you know. That's not what she wanted to hear. She wanted some support. She wanted some empathy. And I think more often than not that people experience those things and they don't get any real support. So, you know, it's just like a nut. So when another one happens, it's sort of like, another one and another one, meaning the incident or the act, when they occur, then it, it begins to feel, you know, what I kind of think about it as it's like, a, it's like psychic numbing almost that begins mm. to set in. Because what else is new? You know, we were on the highway and the sheriffs came and they stopped us and you're, you're going to the homecoming and you tell a few people and then you move on and you have a good time. And you don't dwell on it. And that's just the way it is. Because for one thing, people are so happy that you're alive because they know what the reverse of that could be. So in other words, race-based trauma or race-based stress needs to be dealt with. And I don't think that all individuals have a a full-blown reaction to it, but some people might. But I do think that we, we as a community and certainly communities in general need to really be supportive of people and be empathic to people and, and to really hear the stories. And they're not really great stories because I think we also want to believe that we've moved on. You know, here we are in the 21st century. This couldn't be happening, but it is happening. Mm-hmm. And that's the part also that I think, Jason, that really makes people feel it, it's a bit crazy-making because these things are happening to you, but yet you're the only one that you feel like nobody else knows. And so yeah. you just kind of get up and you manage and you do it and you say that's just the way it is. And that is the way it is, 
but I think that people do need support. I think that when practitioners are working in agencies, they should be listening for those kinds of race-related stress. And before people get to trauma, I think that people are dealing with race-related stress. I actually think that comes before trauma, not all the time, mm -hmm. but I do think that people are dealing with these micro-assaults, microaggressions, and, you know, it's like a low-grade fever, you know, if you have a low-grade fever, you could probably still go to work, but you're not at your baseline <laughs> until maybe yeah. the next day. And so that's conceptually, that's how I think about that area of people's lives when I'm seeing them in, in treatment and they're talking about that. It's sad because there is a lack of validation in many ways when right. these issues are dismissed, especially by practitioners who... Yes. Perhaps they don't understand it, or they do believe that we live in a post-racial society. Absolutely. And I think also, you know, I like to think of this sort of conceptually on two levels. You have sort of the intra-cultural and racial dynamics and the responses that can come from that configuration. So, in other words, the person who was just pulled over and, to some extent, did all the right things as per the police department, and, you know, then they're driving off, right? And so they're left with a set of feelings about that experience, right? Because they feel like, why did this happen to me? I didn't do anything. If I was somebody else, I would never stop and so forth. And then they get to their destination, and let's say they're going to have dinner with friends, and they may have been 10 minutes late, and they say, oh, they pull me over. And people say, oh, and then they say, oh, you're okay. And, and that's the intro, right, because these are people who share, you know, maybe some things with you. In other words, one way to think about that is your affinity group. And then you have the inter, where the, these people are not, they're not, they're not part of your affinity group. They could be people that you work with, people that you know, and they could be great people, but they're not from your racial cultural group. And, and you talk about that. And, you know, you may get a, a very similar response, you know. And it, so the two groups may give you very similar responses. And all I'm trying to say here is that whatever grouping you're a part of, I think it's really important, just to use your word, to really validate that. I usually say something in, in therapy such as, depending on the circumstance, but I would say something like, you know, I'm so glad you're giving voice to this. And... Okay. If the person doesn't say anything to me, I might say, well, you know, in, in, in saying that to you, what are you experiencing right now? And sometimes I hear things like, I'm numb. I hear things like, well, you know, I never even thought I was giving voice to it. I just thought I was telling you. And, and you know, and I hear other things. And I think the second response to me is very telling because just the, the idea that you're just telling me doesn't feel like you're expecting me to be be responsive to you because it really just it, you know it's like you're just reporting it's just a summary you're just kind of reporting what happened and so oftentimes I'm trying to reach for the feelings that the person might have related to the experience and while that may not be the entire session I note that as a, as a practitioner and as something that I need to be aware of. And so that's what I kind of think a little bit about when I think about critical consciousness in my work, right? That you begin to have some critical consciousness about, okay, this person talked about this particular thing that happened to them at work or they were pulled over, 
and in this case, it's a black man. And so what do I need to be thinking about, you know, in terms of my own critical consciousness here? And so that may not become the dominant aspect of our work, but it certainly is something that I'm mindful of that I may need to revisit. So I would agree with you 100% that people do need validation if they're in a, a professional context with a practitioner, but certainly, you know, just to be in, in the company of friends or your own social network, I think people do need validation. And I think one of the points you made that's always interesting to me within these cases is that you spoke of Jamal, who mm-hmm. you worked with, and, you know, within that work, he did everything, quote-unquote, the right way. He dressed yes. a certain way. He didn't right. have baggy clothing. Right. Um, and he had to grapple with the fact that it still happened to him. Right. Simply right. because of his identity. Absolutely. And that goes back, thank you for mentioning that, because that also goes back, I think, to even the idea of race-related stress or race-based trauma, because even the way it's worded, that this is happening to you because of who you are. And I think even for those of us who do the work, right, or do research in this area, we also have to think a little bit about how we are impacted. And we have to also be aware of our own shared vulnerability relative to this work. And so how do we use that? Do we use that to over-identify? Do we use that to under-identify with, our, with, with, with the people we're working with, in this case, you know, with, with black men? I wrote a paper on the case of Edward where I really tried to unpack this idea of the intra-cultural, intra-racial, intra-cultural, the gender, when the work is gendered, as well as social class. And it's an area I think a lot about because when you're a black male practitioner, where do you develop knowledge and skills and understanding about working with people from your own affinity group? And so, and so I'm very curious about that. So, like, you know, you know, you go into an agency to do your internship, and you're working with boys, and automatically everybody's glad to see you. But mm-hmm. why are they glad to see you? Simply because you're a black man. So what is it that you bring that is so qualitatively different than another male, other than some obvious things, right? And that, that occurred to me over... I won't mention how many years I've been out of graduate school, but it occurred to me when I was in my graduate training where I was working with black boys. It was my first sort of way into working with that population, and then I never, and, you know, I never let go. And everybody was glad to see me at the school. They said, oh, my God, where have you been? We have these boys, and they're all terrible. And they put me in this huge auditorium, and they, say, they said to me, do group work. And so the only way I was going to reach those boys, I had to first play basketball every time I was in my placement, and they would always beat me, of course. And then I would then sit down, and we started to talk. And I said, well, you know, guys, I'm a, I'm a student in grad school, and I do need to talk to you. I can't play basketball with you all the time. And then they just started talking about their fathers, and it became the boys' group. The boys, I think they call it the boys group that, 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 that's talking about their fathers or something. 
to that effect. I can't remember. It's been years now. But the whole thrust of our work together was around missing dads and their feelings about missing dads. And, and at that point, I had to think through very carefully as a younger man, what is it that I'm bringing to this work that is potentially different, unique, helpful, useful, or not, other than the fact that they're part of my affinity group. And so fast forward 20 years beyond that, it's, it's something I think a lot about. So when the work, I guess, is gendered, when the work is intra, and then you have issues of police brutality, issues of social injustice, where you yourself as a black male could be stopped and may have been stopped. Right. Or you may have just conducted a session and you're leaving your office and you are also being surveilled. So one has to think those things through in terms of what it is one is really doing in, in, in practice and how one is even making policy if that's the area you're in. But I think there has to be some degree of of mindfulness around this notion of shared vulnerability, which I've written about quite a bit. And I've been profiled, and I'm not an adolescent. I've been profiled. So in my work with Jamal, I had to, I had to be aware of that and try to understand how I could use that to be helpful. And again, that goes back to this notion of race-related stress and the fact that many of us have experienced race-related stress. Clearly, their degrees to 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 the exposure and impact, but certainly we have to be aware of it. And I, and I just think that you know, I mean, I know in my own pedagogy at school, I spend time talking about these issues in my class. I'm only n of one as a faculty member, but I do spend time because I do know that students are going out and they're having to deal with and work with black men who have been profiled. They're not privileged in the way that I'm privileged. And even with my own privilege, and my own positionality, and my own social location, I am not exempt. Right. And so I think that's very powerful. And so they're working with men in shelters. They're working with men in hospitals. They're working with men in community settings. I mean, I don't have to tell you, Jason, you know. And meaning you know the field. And so they're struggling with what to, how, to, how, to, how to really respond to these men who also, in addition to just having challenges in their lives, they also have to deal with the fact that they are under surveillance all the time. Yeah. There's that aspect of, of duality there in many instances. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, you've given a lot of helpful takeaways as well as next steps for practitioners that mm -hmm. are working with men who have experienced these things. And I'm wondering if you could essentially sum those up in, in some way. Mm -hmm. What should practitioners really take from this? Well, I think that practitioners could do a number of things. I think practitioners could understand how the macro issues, namely policies, inform micro work, that if we think about, about the Rockefeller drug laws, if we think about stop and frisk, if we just think a little bit about those major policies that have served 
or have certainly placed black men at risk. The fact that sometimes black men are just picked up and they are taken in and they just languish in jail and they don't have attorneys, they don't have legal representation. And so all of that is coming from a macro level, not a micro level. So that's the first thing we need to really be aware of, and that's the kind of practitioner I I, I hope that I am. I, I try to really always think about the macro issues because without understanding the macro, you know, it's really hard to do the work at the micro level, I think. And it goes back to something we said earlier about not being ahistorical, but to be historical, to be able to understand that history plays a role here, and that's also guiding us. I don't think macro policies just start in the 21st century. I think they also have their linkages going back to history and going back to the laws and so forth. So I think that's really one takeaway. I think another takeaway is to really understand that, you know, police brutality is real and that witnessing these acts of violence, gratuitous violence on social media, on video cameras, we have to be careful that we don't become numb to the viewing of black bodies. And so the the fact that when we turn on the television, we're constantly bombarded with these images of black men being kicked, black men being dragged, on the one hand, that's giving visibility to an old problem, that if you have been black for a while, and male in America, you know that was going on. I think the difference now is that because of the advent of technology, that we can sort of publicize publicize these things in ways that other people can access them. But I think the potential peril there is that if we have a steady diet of these images, that we can become numb and I have a concern about that, quite frankly, and the way our bodies are portrayed. You know, we're on the street, we die, no one comes, and people are looking, and, and, and you know, so I'm, I'm sort of concerned about that. And, you know, that's something that I think we as practitioners may not be able to do anything on a micro level, but certainly I think our positioning as practitioners, as social workers, can be very helpful. And by positioning, meaning that we can begin to advocate for, we can begin to write about, we can begin to, you know, write op-ed pieces about things like that so that there is more awareness about that. So that's one thing I'm, I'm concerned about. I'm also concerned about, or maybe I'd, I'd like to say it's not so much a concern, I'd like practitioners to also understand that when black men are brutalized by the cops on any level, whether it's surveilling them, driving down the street, behind them slowly, without stopping them, I've seen that repeatedly, or pulling them over, or beating them, and ultimately killing them, we need to understand that that has a resulting effect on black men and black people in general, because black men have families, they have children, they have, they have 
partners. They're from a community. So that affects people. And I think that I'd like practitioners of all stripes to really take that seriously. And while we need to advocate for laws, while we need to really be taking this to the highest level, legislatively and so forth, we cannot ignore the mental health effect of this. And that's been a concern of mine that, you know, when other groups of people experience community trauma, for example, someone goes into the community and they massacre the community by shooting everyone, we hear about that for weeks and days and we talk about it and we talk about all the various aspects of that, namely the legislative aspect. We talk about the political aspect, but we also talk about the mental health angle. It's been my experience that that's an omission, and I think I made that point in the article around I Can't Breathe, that there is a glaring omission that the resulting effects of police practices, negative police practices on these men, that somehow there isn't a correlation between what they have endured from the police and their own mental health status. And so I think that's really, really important. I also want to clarify that black men are not inherently pathological, so that when I make this point, I'm not suggesting that all black men should be seen by a psychiatrist or therapist because they're crazy. My point simply is that something has happened to them and that something that has happened to them has resulted in psychosocial problems and behavioral problems. And so we need to be very, very cognizant that those kinds of police practices clearly have mental health implications as far as men's, these men, the men's ability to function. And so I think that's another takeaway I, I, I would also like to see happen. It's really important that schools of social work, criminal justice uh, programs, begin to infuse this content in their work. Because when you talk about a course on criminal justice, we should be talking about this. If you talk about a course on social work and the law, we should be talking about this. So I think from a pedagogical perspective, in terms of social work education, we should be talking about this, but not only talking about it, we should really be infusing what we're talking about today and beyond, really, the research. We should be infusing that in social work curricula and syllabi. So I think that's really, really important. And the last point I want to make is that there is also this notion that black men are not good candidates for counseling, psychotherapy, therapy, whatever, however you want to frame that. And I think that that needs to be debunked. That hasn't been my experience. It also hasn't been the experience of many colleagues I know. When I look at Rashid and Rashid's work on social work practice with African-American men, their findings are clearly the opposite of this seeming conventional wisdom that we have embraced as a, as a, as a field, that somehow black men aren't, aren't, aren't responsive to any kind of uh, psychotherapy or doing any kind of personal work. 
I think what's at play here is how the work is constructed, who is doing the work, and how we're also talking to these men about being a part of this kind of personal work that we call psychotherapeutic work or counseling, direct service, however we want to frame that. And finally, a corollary to this is that my own practice consists of many black men. I have a practice, so men, men who come to me are coming to me because they want to come to me. They're not involuntary clients. These are not men who are coming because someone says, if you don't get therapy, something horrible is going to happen to you. And they come, and we work together, and they stay in treatment, they stay in counseling until, you know, our goals are, are met. And so I kind of want to leave with that word. I have a certain passion around that because I hear that when I go to meetings. I hear that when I go to conferences. And yet, and also I, hear, I, I heard that quite a bit when I did agency-based practice, that black men were hard to engage, that they were angry. And I take the position that all clients are hard to engage. And I also take the position that anger is a legitimate expression. And so how do we handle other clients' anger and rage? And I'm going to leave you with this point. I'm reminded of the book Black Rage. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, that work. But Black Rage was written in the 60s. I think it was written by Asilin and Cobb. And it's a classic for me because those two, they're two black, I think one may have been a psychiatrist and one may have been a psychologist. But they argue very convincingly that, that rage and anger are really very good attributes for black men because they keep black men alive. Now, they also argue that the exercising rage and anger in maladaptive way are not helpful. But how could one not be angry or rageful given the hostility that exists in an ongoing way? I think that we need not be afraid of black men's rage or anger. I think we should try to understand the rage and anger as ways to promote more positive self-well-being. Thank you. I, I think that's a perfect place to leave our listeners. Dr. Amer, I want to thank you so much for your expertise, for sharing your experiences, as well as really leaving us with a framework and starting the conversation on how we can actually impact black men positively within therapeutic spaces, especially those who have experienced police-related trauma. So thank you for that. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for having me, and um, I hope that this was helpful. We appreciate you joining us. I'd like to thank our sponsors, our presenter, Dr. Samuel Amer, and our producer, Brianna Gonzalez. To learn more about our work and to check out some of our resources, visit mcsilver.nyu.edu and ctacny.org. Until next time, this is Jason Jones, and we are changing the narrative together. Music.